It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the northeast corner of Italy lies Veneto, a land of valleys, hills, rivers, and the world-famous Venetian Lagoon, where the capital city of Venice floats. For generations, this place fostered families in the face of plagues, world wars, and revolutions. But for one family, the land seemed more cursed than blessed. In the summer of 2001, the many branches of this sprawling family tree converged at a single home. Over 50 people in total, some knew each other well, while others were just distant relatives. This was a reunion of sorts, but celebration was not in the cards. Over the past 300 years, the family line had been plagued by mysterious and terrible symptoms. Endless insomnia, hallucinogenic madness, and premature death had claimed generations with no clear medical answer. Until now. A woman stood before the family and called them to attention. While her size didn't command the room, her desperate voice did as did her eyes, tired not yet from insomnia, but from years of searching for the truth. Her name was Lisi. Alongside her husband, Ignacio, she told her relatives that the time had come to address the family curse. They were not dealing with bad luck or supernatural phenomena, but a concrete biological disease. And after years of being brushed off by medical professionals, it was time for the family to take matters into their own hands. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Next week, in Part 2, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on the still incurable syndrome that came to be known as fatal familial insomnia 
and the anonymous Italian family that's been haunted by this mysterious disease for centuries. This week, we'll trace the family's troubled history from the pre-Napoleonic canals of Venice to 20th century Padua as successive generations tried and failed to understand their biological curse. Next week, we'll explore the discovery that revolutionized the study of infection and learn how fatal familial insomnia fits inside a much larger and deadlier paradigm of diseases than anyone could have imagined. We cannot help but sleep. We can try to avoid it, as many a procrastinating teenager or anxious warrior has attempted. But we will always fail eventually. It might take a few minutes or a few hours, but that familiar heaviness behind the eyelids eventually sneaks up. But what if sleep didn't return to you after a long day of work? What if, no matter how you twisted and turned in your sheets, no matter how much your body ached and longed for it, no matter how strange your thoughts became, rest never arrived? The National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute connects sleep deprivation to a myriad of neurological and physical health problems. If you're sleep deficient, you may have trouble making decisions, solving problems, controlling your emotions and behavior, and coping with change. Sleep deficiency also has been linked to depression, suicide, and risk-taking behavior. When you sleep, your body engages in a process of physical healing. Deep sleep triggers the release of hormones that repair tissues and muscles. Without the proper amount of deep sleep, those hormones become unbalanced. The immune system weakens, and heart disease, diabetes, and even the common cold have a better chance of overtaking the body. Writing in Scientific American, Professor of Psychiatry J. Christian Gillen addressed the question, how long can we stay awake before we die? The answer isn't straightforward. The official record for sleeplessness was won in 1965 by the teenager Randy Gardner, who stayed awake for over 11 days for a school science fair. He was back to normal after one or two days of recovery sleep. But often, even when a person doesn't reach a full sleep, they aren't exactly awake either. As an example, sufferers of Morvan's syndrome, which causes extreme muscle twitching, often never enter a deep period of sleep. However, in one case of Morvan's syndrome, researchers observed that the subject still entered an hour-long hallucinatory stage each night. The afflicted members of the Venetian family we're discussing today would most likely relate to those with Morvan's syndrome. Sufferers of their mystery disease sometimes went as long as 30 months without experiencing a night of full sleep, before the massive imbalances of their metabolic, hormonal, and neurological systems finally killed them. The uncertain connection between sleeping and the other processes of the body lies at the heart of this mystery. As author D.T. Max documents in his book, The Family That Couldn't Sleep, science has finally begun to uncover some troubling truths about neurology in the past century. As new tools have emerged to help us probe the depths of the mind, a number of once incomprehensible diseases are now starting to make sense to researchers, from Alzheimer's to Parkinson's 
to the Venetian family curse. For the sake of the family's privacy, their surname has been shielded from the records. But for simplicity, we'll call them the Venetians. The earliest recorded instance of symptoms in the family line can be traced to 1764. This man's name has been lost to time, but it is known that he was an esteemed patrician doctor in Venice. Often called the Republic of Music, the waterways of the legendary capital city were full of vibrant life. The Venetian doctor lived at the same time as the roguish Casanova, the legendary Lothario and writer. He most likely attended the opulent galas of the city's elite, where masked merchants gallivanted side by side with European royalty. The doctor may not have been at the highest end of this hereditary oligarchy, where esteem and wealth were passed down familial lines, yet he was still wealthy enough to hold land in both the capital city of Venice and the countryside of Veneto. A graduate of the School of Medicine at Padua, the doctor was an intellectual descendant of Galileo himself and swore by nothing but the scientific method. So one evening, late in 1764, when even the peaceful sounds of a Venice night couldn't lull him to sleep, the doctor began to think something was wrong. He called out to his wife in the other room, The doctor's wife gazed into her husband's sleepless eyes. There was a bit of a glassy look to them, as if he were caught between the waking world and the dreaming one. She also noticed her husband glistened with sweat from head to toe. The sweat had soaked through his layers of clothes and into the sheets. She filled a bucket of cold water and ran a cool cloth against his head, hoping to cool any fever he might have. But the doctor shook her off. The strangest thing about all of this was he wasn't hot. While this was only the beginning of the rationalist era and doctors were more often wrong than right, they knew that sickness and sweat were usually accompanied by a rise in body temperature. Yet, the doctor was cool to the touch. His sweat ran for no clear reason at all. When the morning clarion call from Piazza San Marco rang out, the doctor still had not slept a wink. His wife suggested he stay in bed, but the frustrated doctor forced his body up. There was much work to do today, as always. Sleep would certainly come the next night. So the doctor returned to his routine. For weeks, he commuted between his two properties, practicing his trade in both the city and countryside. And yet, sleep continued to elude him. He could close his eyes, quiet his mind, but he never quite drifted off into unconsciousness. His discomfort and exhaustion only grew over the next few weeks. He consulted with other friends in the medical field, but all they could suggest was to spend more time in the fresh air. The conception of sleep in 1764 was still firmly set in Aristotelian ideas. The Greek philosopher had ruled that sleep was linearly connected to eating. The energy, or fumes, from the meal drifted through the body until they entered the heart. The cooling process then produced sleepiness. 
Around 200 CE, the physician Galen advanced things slightly further, suggesting that it was the brain and not the heart that led to sleep. But beyond that, it was still all Greek to the doctors of Venice and no help to our specific doctor. During the following weeks, stiffness spread through his limbs and his anxiety ratcheted up. The doctor began to suspect the environment was to blame. Mysterious diseases were not uncommon in this land of humidity and swampy water. Infection was such a regular problem that Venice's public health department had strict regulations on the management of contagion. After a victim was claimed by disease, all of their sheets were burned in a pyre and the rest of their belongings were left out in the sun's purifying heat. Public servants then oversaw the perfuming of the deceased's residence because, as D.T. Max writes, the predominant view was that infection was an invisible substance carried in the air as smell, connecting the spread of disease to particles that couldn't be seen by the human eye was an intuitive thought, but perfuming didn't actually do anything to combat bacteria and viruses, which weren't yet understood by scientists. Either way, the doctor's colleagues concurred that he didn't show any signs of a typical infection, but they didn't have an alternative explanation either. By the beginning of 1765, the doctor's months of sleeplessness had left him completely bedridden. While the records don't state his exact symptoms, we can draw conclusions from the fates that would soon follow in his family. In the final stages of this illness, the lack of coordination caused by sleep deprivation progresses to the point where body movement becomes erratic or sometimes completely impossible. The doctor's wife allowed her husband's friends to gather in their home at all hours as they worked to find a solution. She herself was exhausted from keeping vigil all night, every night, as the doctor began to have dangerous hallucinations. One night, he nearly mistakenly walked out his bedroom window. Her earlier observations regarding the doctor's body temperature also seemed to have changed. One night, he was cool, and the next, he was burning hot. But in either case, he was always sweating. His colleagues saw only one possible solution, a popular drug called treacle. For over 1,400 years, physicians and healers across Europe had always turned to treacle. There were many different brews, but the key ingredient was always viper's flesh. According to the ancient Greek physician Galen, it took poison to destroy poison in the body. While this is a solid concept that eventually became the basis for treatments like vaccination and chemotherapy, a lack of regulation in the 18th century meant most treacle was little more than snake oil. But hoping for the best, the doctor's colleagues walked away from a local apothecary with a fresh batch of treacle in hand and returned to his bedside. They fed him the miracle cure, either directly as a paste or mixed in with water. When they finally got it down his throat, they sat back and observed. Besides viper's flesh, the mix contained opium, which was often prescribed for insomnia due to its sedative effects. That would surely bring their friends some sorely needed rest. 
But again, the morning bell rang out, and another night had passed without rest. If anything, the treacle only made the doctor even sweatier. The doctor's colleagues left his home and told his wife there was only one type of healer she could turn to now, the local priests. For the next two months, the doctor sat completely paralyzed in his own bed, still unable to move from his stiffness and loss of coordination. Death arrived before sleep ever did. The records of this doctor's illness are some of the longest found in the Venice medical records from that year. Within the medical community, this mystery must have held quite a sway. And yet, in the end, all that could be written for his cause of death was, quote, an organic defect of the heart's sac. Just like that, a pattern began. Members of the Venetian family were born. They tried to live well, but seemingly at random were struck down by a protracted and deadly insomnia at a young age. Doctors misunderstood their conditions and their causes of death. Soon enough, the family could only write it off as an unlucky twist of fate. They were cursed. Coming up, we'll follow the curse through the ages into the modern era and explore the carnage left in its wake. And now, back to the story. Five years after the Venetian doctor died from his mysterious and chronic case of insomnia, his nephew Giuseppe was born in 1770. Giuseppe grew up in his uncle's idyllic countryside palazzo until Napoleon's invasion in 1797. The former Republic of Venice was traded to Austrian control, under which it would remain for most of the next century. Under Austria's reign, the countryside of Veneto fell on truly hard times. As the mercantile oligarchy thinned out in the capital city, the farmers and artisans experienced trickle-down hardship. The countryside's troubles only grew when Austria decided to dig channels through the valleys to root fresh water into the capital city. This had the effect of transforming all of Veneto into a veritable swamp. As mentioned earlier, this atmosphere served as a vector for many diseases, and now it was malaria's time in the spotlight. This vicious disease limited productivity on farmlands as workers succumbed to illness and death. This, in turn, led to malnutrition, which led to yet another disease known as pellagra. The World Health Organization identifies pellagra as a disease of nutrient deficiency associated with diets with low levels of niacin or other B vitamins, resulting in dermatitis, diarrhea, and dementia that can lead to death. In the first decades of the 19th century, Giuseppe tried to work the land and support his increasingly large family, including his three sons, Costante, Angelo, and Vincenzo. But in 1827, Costante succumbed to illness. He raved through the night and told his father that it felt as if he had been possessed— Despite an extended prescription of exorcisms by Catholic priests, 
Costante died in 1828 after months of protracted illness, still in his teenage years. His recorded cause of death matched so many others in the area. It was pellagra. While the skin condition associated with pellagra did not match Costante's symptoms, dementia and death certainly did. That was enough for Italian medical authorities to connect the two syndromes. Giuseppe refused to accept such an answer. The family was well off enough that no one went hungry. No malnutrition meant no pellagra. But doctors weren't interested in investigating another cause. Until... Giuseppe also fell ill. At 58, his symptoms more closely resembled his late uncle's rather than his son Costante's. More insomnia, less delirium. It is possible that father and son truly did have different diseases, yet the differing symptoms based on age would pop up later through the Venetian family tree. There's also the sad fact that both father and son were immobilized for months before their inevitable and unexplainable deaths. Giuseppe passed away within the same year as Costante, 1828. This left Vincenzo and Angelo behind. Born in 1813, Angelo was dead by the 1870s when he was in his 60s. His symptoms were nearly an exact match for his father's. Vincenzo, on the other hand, survived until 1880 when he died of cancer, not the family disease, at age 58. Before Vincenzo passed, he and his redheaded wife, Mariana, had eight children, six of whom would survive until adulthood. Mariana passed away in 1893 and counted herself lucky not to die the same long, painful death as her husband's relatives. But Mariana and Vincenzo's children weren't so lucky, though neither parent lived to learn this hard truth. Their firstborn, Angelo, died in 1901 in his mid-30s, while Pirina followed in 1906 in her 40s, Giovanni in 1913 in his 40s, and finally, Antonio in 1926, in his 50s. Records listed different causes of death for each sibling, but the conclusions were never very definitive. From the modern perspective, all signs point toward the siblings dying of the same family disease. The Venetian family began to have a similar sense. Something was haunting them, but they had no easy answer. Since Mariana was not from Veneto originally, she was an easy scapegoat for her descendants. They didn't yet know that the disease went all the way back to the Venetian doctor, so they blamed the red-headed interloper for bringing the curse. In addition to heartache, the deaths also caused a tragic cycle of economic misfortune. The infected branches of the Venetian family grew successively less wealthy due to the early deaths of the working-age adults. This caused yet another vicious cycle, as these families then had more and more children to create more wage earners and keep everyone fed. The mysterious disease spread rapidly down the family line, yet Venetian and Italian doctors never properly connected all of these cases to one another. The family members' causes of death were listed over and over as pellagra or dementia, or even lumped with the encephalitis lethargica plague that had spread over Europe in the early decades of the 1900s. 
Otherwise known as the sleeping sickness, this rare form of encephalitis, a brain swelling disease, causes victims to fall into periods of unending slumber, the exact opposite of the Venetian family's problem. However, as Dr. Ava Easton wrote for the Encephalitis Society, some other symptoms of the two diseases resemble one another, such as muscle paralysis, forms of delirium, and flu-like symptoms. Before World War I, encephalitis lethargica was spreading rapidly across Europe. However, as cases gradually declined, it became clear that the Venetian family's disease was something else. And as time went on, the possible causes only continued to shrink. After the unification of Italy in 1871, a huge public works project was put in motion to drain the swamps that had infested the Veneto countryside. Large hydraulic pump technology cleared away much of the murky water, and without anywhere for bacteria to fester, the scourge of malaria mostly vanished. But as the general death toll flatlined, this only made the deaths in the Venetian family stand out even more. Now, the notion of a family curse spread beyond their private homes and into the public gossip mill. It was into this atmosphere that Pietro, Vincenzo's grandson, grew up. When he was born in 1894, the family had already fallen far from their patrician origins. Pietro was not wealthy, but he was ambitious. He studied and he read, and he worked hard to earn the respect of his community. But then the Great War came to Italy in 1915, when Pietro was 21. In the wake of the destruction, the brand new hydraulic pumps died and malaria returned. During these struggles, the Socialist Party came to power, and Pietro became a guiding light in the new local government. Only in his 20s, he was dedicated to rebuilding the Veneto countryside and keeping the national spirit of Italy alive. But there was one black mark on his record, the Venetian family curse. Although he was a respected member of the community, not many women desired to wed a cursed man. Pietro did finally manage to wed a dedicated partner in 1920, and they had five children by 1931, Isolina, Tosca, Pierina, Assunta, and Silvano. Pietro's political idealism faced a heavy challenge in the 1930s as Benito Mussolini's fascist party took control of the country. Pietro was forced to bend the knee and serve this autocratic and corrupt government. He did it to hold on to his property and keep his family fed. But some of his old socialist allies never forgave him. By 1943, World War II kicked the legs out from under the fascist government. Partisan forces throughout Italy came together to fight off the fascists, and Pietro fell into their crosshairs. In 1944, a threat was posted to his family's front door. It read, prepare your bones because we're going to break them soon. Signed, go sleep with the fishes. Pietro's enemies didn't understand the irony of this statement. Soon after receiving the threat, 
A sudden stiffness seized his body, and he fell to his knees while trying to work in the fields. He told himself it was nothing but stress. But his daughter, Isolina, knew something was very wrong. Thanks to her keen intuition, history finally received its first in-depth record of the family disease. Pietro was confined to a hospital bed by 1943, with doctors throwing up their hands in confusion, as they always had in the face of the family's curse. With great sadness, Isolina wrote to her brother Tosca, Papa is considerably worse than a month ago. He's lost his mind. He barely speaks, and when he does, he doesn't know what he's saying. When he sleeps, it's even worse. He makes these little movements because his nerves are never calm. He rubs his hands and says he has pins and needles, all this while seemingly asleep. And when he wakes, he is more tired than ever. This last note was an incredibly important observation. What Isolina noticed without realizing it is that this was a form of insomnia, not dementia or delirium. Those signs of madness were side effects, not the inherent issue. What Pietro could not clearly communicate is that even when he appeared to be resting, he never truly achieved deep sleep. In the 1920s, Dr. Nathaniel Kleitman started decades of research into sleep cycles. It wouldn't be until 1953 that Kleitman and his student Eugene Azarinsky discovered rapid eye movement sleep, the phase when dreaming occurs. From there, scientists began to untangle the different phases of sleep. According to the National Institute of Neurological Disorders, there are four main stages divided between non-REM and REM sleep. The first non-REM stage lasts only a few minutes as muscles relax and heartbeat slows. The second stage of non-REM sleep is the brain's cool-down period until it finally achieves non-REM deep sleep in stage three. This is a stage where the most physiological recovery actually occurs. Finally, stage four is when our minds enter into the dreaming state of REM. During a full night's rest, our minds and bodies cycle through the four stages multiple times, with the most time spent in stages two and three. Long-term disruptions to the cycle can cause serious effects on the body's processes. But of course, in 1943, none of this was known to the small Venice hospital where Pietro laid as the battles of World War II raged overhead. Isolina stayed by her father's side as bombs shook the hospital building all around them. She knew the doctor's diagnosis of encephalitis was incorrect because Pietro, who was still lucid, did not complain of headaches a key symptom of that disease. But even after all of her efforts to observe and record her father's struggle, doctors could find no answer to the medical puzzle. Pietro remained bedridden until his death on June 19, 1944, at the age of 49. Another mistaken cause of death was recorded, hypertension. Isolina could only shake her head and chalk up another tragedy to the Venetian family curse. 
Thirty years later, in 1973, Pietro's youngest daughter, Assunta, sat before a loom, working long hours for low pay in an Italy impoverished by the oil crisis. But she never complained. That's what her niece, Isolina's daughter, Lisi, would always remember about her. Throughout the year, the 24-year-old Lisi would come to find her life defined by an all-consuming anxiety. It began when the ailing Asunta took refuge in the upstairs bedroom of their home. One fateful day, Isolina led Lisi upstairs to watch over her aunt. Lisi watched in fear as Isolina explained that this was the same exact progression of symptoms that overtook Pietro all those years ago. But unlike everyone else in her family, Lisi could not take it lying down. She realized that what was affecting Asunta had been striking down other members of their family in the decades since Pietro's death. Pietro's sister Angelo had died in 1948, followed by his niece Luigia in 1952, and another niece, Maria, in 1964. All of their symptoms corresponded with those of the family illness. Lisi inherited the intuition of her mother Isolina, but took her observations a step further. She was studying to be a nurse and engaged to an aspiring doctor named Ignazio. Together, the pair set out to eliminate the notion of a curse and discover the true source of a familial disease. When we return, Lisi and Ignazio begin their own investigation into the Venetian family curse. And now, back to the story. As Asunta laid in bed, incapacitated by the same disease that had ravaged her family for centuries, the lights above her flickered. 1973 was an austere time for Italy, as the global oil crisis led to both food shortages and electricity blackouts. Luckily, Assunta's brother Silvano had become a successful businessman in the years since their father Pietro's death. Financially, at least, he could carry the burden of this family curse. In much the same way, Lisi was picking up a different type of burden. D.T. Max defines it well in the pages of The Family Who Couldn't Sleep. Common among families with genetic diseases is that members tend to divide between the ignorers and the burden carriers. In this family, Lisi is a burden carrier. That all began here in 1973, when Asunta reported to her niece that she felt, quote, like a marionette whose master had dropped the strings. After a summer spent sweating and stiffening inside her brother's home, the family finally relented and brought Asunta to a hospital. Lisi was all too ready for the typical response. Examining doctors suggested everything, including encephalitis, before finally settling on an inner ear disorder called Meniere's disease. Dizzy spells and sweating were symptoms of Meniere's, which lined up with Asunta's symptoms. But Lisi almost laughed in disbelief when she asked after the cause of Meniere's. It was unknown. One doctor suggested it might be menopause. 
Lisi also knew Miniers didn't explain the insomnia that haunted all the sick members of her family, from Asunta back to Pietro, and she assumed long before that, too. The family transferred Asunta to a hospital in Padua for the best possible care. The journey drained her of her remaining energy, and she was only met by more confused doctors. They insisted that Asunta must be hiding an alcohol problem. Her shaking, uncontrollable limbs, her heightened anxiety and sleeplessness. Asunta could only tearfully shake her head and deny it. Her spirit crumbled the more doctors insisted that she was hiding something from her family. Lisi was indignant over the medical staff's treatment of her aunt. The hospital tied her down to her bed to keep her from thrashing onto the floor, and still they couldn't diagnose what was wrong with her. Asunta was sent down a line of CAT scans and other brain monitoring tests, but there was nothing out of place in her head. On December 30th, 1973, the Padua medical staff injected her with a dye, hoping to scan her again and search for a hidden tumor. Instead, Asunta's heart rate skyrocketed and her convulsions worsened. Lisi and the rest of the family could only watch in horror as Asunta struggled for breath. An emergency tracheotomy was performed. Doctors cut a hole into her throat and inserted a breathing tube. Everyone expected her to die, but incredibly, Asunta still hung on to life into the new year. Interviewed later by D.T. Max, Lisi wistfully recalled that her aunt could talk till the end, just like Pietro. Whatever was wrong with her brain never affected her memory. When Asunta died in the early days of 1974, she was exhausted. Her pupils were small pinpricks of black, and she had sweat out most of her body weight. But she still knew who she was, and she still knew her family was right there by her side. Days later, on the eve of Asunta's autopsy, Lisi and Ignazio agreed that he would attend it to make his own observations. Now an accredited doctor, the hospital allowed Ignazio in as a guest. He sat amongst medical experts in the autopsy examination theater. When Asunta's brain was removed, its weight didn't seem to indicate there had been any extensive loss of mass as would be consistent with something like Alzheimer's or a brain infection. Frustrated, the examiner kept cutting, sectioning the brain into smaller and smaller pieces with nothing to show for it. Ignazio grew frustrated as well, as he knew such a massacre of an autopsy would prevent him from doing more microscopic study later. And in the end, it was all for nothing. The autopsy didn't yield any useful information. Over the next four years following Lisi and Ignazio's marriage, the couple set to work putting together a comprehensive history of the family and their disease. Lisi's mother, Isolina, became her reluctant guide to distant relatives and long-lost stories. As Lisi and Ignazio worked, they literally put their historiography together on a poster in the shape of a tree. In 1978, Lisi's other aunt, Purina, began to show signs of the family disease. This time... 
Lisi and Ignacio arrived at the hospital prepared. They cut off any possible misunderstandings right away. No, this was not Alzheimer's or Meniere's or menopause or alcoholism. This was something else, and they didn't have much time to figure it out. They were right. Time was not on Purina's side, and she passed away in March 1979 in almost identical conditions to her younger sister, Asunta. But this time, the listed cause of death was not a complete guess. The hospital put it down as familial encephalitis of indeterminable origin. Ignazio refused to let the hospital vivisect Purina's brain like they had done to Asunta's. Instead, he made contact with the famed neurologist, Dr. Johannes Vildi in Geneva, and sent him samples of Purina's tissue. Before sending them off, Ignazio himself had studied the samples under a microscope and made quite the monumental discovery. There were significant clusters of dead proteins scattered across Purina's brain tissue. Researchers identify these as structures called plaques, for their uniform, solid form that contrasts with the rest of the healthier tissue around them. By chance, Ignazio had read through case studies that included plaques during his intensive years of study. When he saw the strange scarring of Asunta's tissue, his mind jumped back to one particular case— In the 1910s, German doctor Hans Kreuzfeld examined the brain of a girl who had seemingly been killed by pellagra, the same disease of malnutrition upon which so many of the deaths in the Venetian family had been blamed. But Kreuzfeld realized it was a neurological condition that really killed the girl when he found plaques of dead neurons all over her brain tissue samples. This was unusual. Neurological decay did not often take place over the entire span of the brain, instead gathering in specific areas. But whatever this was, it was different. Ten years later, another German neurologist named Alphonse Maria Jacob diagnosed several other cases with the same condition. Finally, in 1928, an Austrian doctor called Josef Gerstmann put it all together— A series of patients came to him with poor coordination and qualities of dementia. After their deaths, Gerstmann recognized that their plaque-infested tissue samples matched the samples from both Kreuzfeld's and Jakob's patients. And so, Kreuzfeld-Jakob disease was officially minted. Of course, like the Venetian family's disease, no one actually knew the cause of Kreuzfeld-Jakob, or CJD for short. And by the time of Purina's death in 1979, only 150 people had officially died from it. According to D.T. Max, several researchers at the time wondered if CJD was nothing more than a convenient dumping ground for otherwise unclassifiable dementias. When Ignazio brought up a possible connection between CJD and the Venetian family's unknown condition, the neurologist he consulted sided with those suspicious researchers. Pierina's samples showed that the neurological damage was mainly confined to the thalamus structure in the brain. CJD did not affect that area, 
so they couldn't be the same disease. Once again, Lisi and Ignacio were left disappointed. The curse remained hanging over their heads. Lisi grew more paranoid than ever. All of this research had given her nightmares about when the disease might come for her or her mother, Isolina. She followed her mother around the house, watching for any signs that she might be falling ill. She later told D.T. Max, I was a spy in my own house. These were years lived in hell. But Isolina would not be the next victim. The curse would fall upon Lisi's uncle Silvano first. However, this next battle against the disease would change everything. It turned out that Ignacio had gotten very close to the truth when he linked the family condition to CJD. The two diseases did share a commonality. They were sisters in a newly emerging group of diseases caused by a strange and misunderstood infectious agent. It wasn't a virus or a bacterium or anything of the sort. It was not any kind of foreign agent hoping to triumph over our biology. It was our biology. It was a part of the body that, for some reason, turned against the rest. It was simply a protein gone rogue. Today, they are known as prions, and they are the cause of diseases across all forms of life, such as CJD, mad cow disease, and, yes, fatal familial insomnia. After centuries of isolation, the Venetian family was about to discover they were not quite as alone in this struggle as they had always believed. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. Next week, we'll go back in time to track a parallel line of scientific research that led to the discovery of prion diseases and learn how the Venetian family's own investigation fit within a much larger framework of biological history. For more information on fatal familial insomnia, amongst the varied sources we used, we found D.T. Max's investigatory history, The Family That Couldn't Sleep, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Medical Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, Tap Browse and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Jack Bentel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.